uh, the seventh chapter of the book of Ezra. Of the book of Ezra. Hey, don't you want to have revival? You ever said that? Have you, you, you do. You want to have revival? Good. Good. I do too. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. And I think most of us in here and uh, online here pray for revival. But let's talk about revival a little bit. First of all, uh, J. Edwin Orr says, what we really typically pray for is revival isn't really revival at all. What we first need is awakening, that the church would awake so Christians would come alive in the spirit, so to speak. I don't know if that's theologically correct. I don't mean it. We're already alive, but you know what I'm saying, that the Holy Spirit would come upon the church and that the church would be judged first, in a sense, and that the Holy Spirit would come here, and then revival would happen for non-Christians, right? So not quibbling. I know what we mean when we say revival, but we all want it, don't we? Well, guess what the last half of the chapter of Ezra is all about? It's about revival. It's about a people who lived with all the benefits, but squandered it and disobeyed the Lord. And so the Lord took them through a other, another country and sent them for 70 years into Babylon. That's what this book is about. And now the, that's what the first half of the book is about, is that now that that people is coming back, and they first come back, remember, uh, they first come back uh, under Zerubbabel, that's chapters 1 through 6, under Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, the high priest, different Joshua than the one in the Old Testament. So that's what they do. There's a first wave of people, that was 50,000 people or so that came back then. And now what we're going to talk about over the next several chapters is the second wave of the people who returned from their exile in Babylon. Everybody tracking with me? And that's a picture of coming out of the enemy's camp back into the place of God. It's a picture of that. It can be a non-Christian, right, surrendering their life to Christ, coming to the place of God, but it can also be somebody who's lethargic in their faith or backslidden in their faith or whatever, coming back to the Lord. How does it happen? What, what are the steps? What things, what elements are involved? Well, this is the chapters for you. And me, I can't, I, I know that the Lord's going to have revival, awakening, revival. I know he is. I think he's going to have it here in the Mon Valley. I really believe it. I think he's going to have it here in the southwestern PA uh, area. So, as we pray for these things, let's look at chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. Now, I went way fast too fast last week, and people told me I was way too fast. So they have signs back there, and they're, they're, they're too fast, too slow, too many things I've said. So they have them. They've been kidding me all day. But let me tell you the reason I was going fast. See, chapters 1 through 6 are, should be together. Chapters, if I started in chapter 5 and went through 10, it'd be kind of weird. So I wanted to get through chapter 6. I went a little too fast, I recognize. We probably won't go that fast tonight. But here, we're going to study the second wave of returnees. And what's fascinating about the three waves of returnees from Babylon is, remember, there were three waves 
of invasion that took the Israelites out of Jerusalem to Babylon. That happened in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar took the royal family and the vessels. 597 B.C. was the second wave. You can find that in 2 Kings 24. And then 586 B.C., finally, the final death blow to Jerusalem and the temple and all that. Jerusalem's destroyed, temple's destroyed, and the rest of the Jews except the poor of the land, 2 Kings 25, is taken out. So now, we're, much of the Bible is discussing the exile, but I'm trying to orient you here. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all centered around the return from exile. And you need to know that, and I need to know that. Now, here's something really interesting. Between chapter 6 and chapter 7, 57 years transpire. And guess what takes place in between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra? The book of Esther. The whole book of Esther takes place between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Know that, okay? There'll be a quiz at the end. (laughs) All right. Having done that now, let's read all the way to verse 10 of chapter 7. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, Zadok, Ahitab, Amariah, Azariah, Marioth, Zerahiah, son of Uzai, or Uzi, <laughs> the son of Bukai, the son of Abushah, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar. Here it comes. This is the whole reason, the son of Aaron. And as soon as you hear the name Aaron, what do you know about Ezra? He comes from the priestly order, right? Did somebody just say that? You have a mask on, so I couldn't quite hear, <laughs> which is good. Keep the mask on. But right, Aaron, you know that Ezra is a priest. He comes from the priestly line. Aaron, the chief priest. Now, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe. Or in the King James Version, it says a ready scribe. Isn't that cool way of uh, uh, describing him? In the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, there's a lot here, folks, so let's unpack it. The first thing I want you to know is Artaxerxes is the successor king of Persia. Remember now... In 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and 586 B.C., when the exiles were being taken out, they were taken out by the Babylonians. But the Babylonians, you'll recall, you see it in the book of Daniel, were uh, overtaken by the Persians. And we've seen now and been dealing with several Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, and some others. And now we've just gone on in time, and we're at the place where this Artaxerxes, 
Artaxerxes is the king of Persia. So we're dealing with the Persians. That's one thing. But now we get to Ezra. This book is named after him, but you don't encounter him until the seventh chapter. Ezra, this is important. This might be the most important statement I make for the whole night. Ezra's name means help. Help. Do you know this? Or, or do you remember this? John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, Jesus said. For if I don't go away, here it comes. You ready? The helper will not come to you. What's the word for helper there? It's paraclete. It's somebody who comes alongside somebody else and either comforts or helps them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now listen, Ezra is a picture. He's a real person. This really happened. This is real, his story, history. But he's also a picture and a type of the Holy Spirit, the helper. Watch this. After these things, Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, you know that, who's in from the line of Aaron, the priestly line. Well, this Ezra uh, came up from Babylon. Apparently, he, listen to this now, he grew up there. He was born there, maybe, and he lived there, and he heard all the stories about the homeland, but he lived in exile, and he would hear and see people who maybe talked with longing about going back, but mostly, and a lot of what he saw was people who got very comfortable with their own deal in Babylon. Remember, the Israelites went from an agrarian people to a merchant people in Babylon. And Haggai and other places tell us that they got uh, very comfortable with their stuff, right? You see what I'm saying? So here, Ezra grows up in that um, environment. And oftentimes when we get into our material possessions and our comfortableness, guess what can be the number one topic of our thought life? Me. Now I want you to see something here. Ezra was born to be a priest, but there was nowhere to be a priest. There was no temple. He lived in Babylon. He was 900 miles away from the place in which he could do work for the Lord. So guess what he did? He moped. No, he didn't mope. You know what he did? He became a scribe. He became a scribe. He was a, he was a person who became an expert in the law of Moses. So what he would have been would have been several things. He would have been a copyist. He would have made sure that it was copied accurately, the scriptures, so that people could read them up in Babylon or wherever. Very, very fastidious, very, right? But it's not a priest. It's a scribe. He would have also been a person who would have had to have known the scriptures and to help interpret the scriptures. You get it? He wasn't doing what he thought he was called to do. But we never get evidence ever of him complaining. 
or pouting. Oh my, is that a word for the church? Here he was, he was in Babylon. He could have been saying things like this. You ever said this? Oh my, Lord, why do you have me here? You know I'm supposed to be the priest or a priest. And until I'm doing that, I'm just going to sit here and and do whatever. But until you make it so I can get back, I'm on the shelf. Now, we don't say it like that, maybe not that, diff- uh, not that harshly, but we do that a lot. Until the pastor asked me to speak at the men's conference. Why won't the pastor let me, or whatever, not that I let anybody, but you, you, you get what I'm saying, right? Why doesn't he pick one for me for this or for that? While the Lord may be just, uh, you know, growing you in a certain area, and maybe you're not just ready for that yet. You know what I mean? Well, here, he, he never did any of that, but what he did was he became a skilled scribe. Now, remember, Ezra is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember, because we just went through this very uh, uh, close in time to now, Second uh, Peter. We just got through Second Peter not very long ago. There's this place in Second Peter that says this, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but... A holy man of God, or holy men of God, spoke as they were, listen to this, moved by the Spirit. Of course, Ezra would have been a ready, uh, a, a ready scribe, a skilled scribe. He's a picture of the Holy Spirit. You get that? So he's doing this, and uh, uh, the king granted him all his requests. Now, I'm blowing through some of the most amazing pieces of the Scripture in this whole thing. You get what's happening here? (laughs) The king of Persia, of which Ezra is a, a Jewish man who lives in the kingdom of Persia, and so the king of Persia has his thumb, so to speak, but... I mean, he's he's the king over this exiled people. And the Bible says that the king granted to Ezra all his requests. If you don't see the sovereignty and grace and providence of God throughout this entire thing, you just can't help it. Here, you, you know when we say grace is like God's favor? Well, here it is, folks. The Lord God of Israel had given, and then it says, the king granted him all his requests. Not just some of his requests, all of his requests. According to the hand of the Lord of his God, which was upon him. And this is fascinating. That ver- or that uh, um, phrase is used six times in this chapter alone. Ezra was keenly aware of the grace of God, of the providence of God, of the sovereignty of God. Here's something, time out, rabbit trail. I would do if I were you. In your journal, wherever you take your journal, your notes, write out attributes of God. And you can just type in attributes of God, Spurgeon, and it'll, it, one will come up to you right there on a, on a site called Precept Austin. And you can go explore all the attributes of God. And one you should along with Ezra, explore is sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, and explore what sovereignty is. In my, one of my journals, I have it from about 15 years ago, I wrote them all out, every every attribute. And so when I need it, 
I just go back to that journal, boom, right there it is. It's so great. One of them is sovereignty. The Lord is sovereign. Nothing goes through, his, uh, goes through here without uh, God uh, having control of it. And here, he grants all the requests from a pagan king to Ezra, the helper. Well, verse 7, some of the children, the high priests of Israel, the singers, etc., came up to Jerusalem, and it gives you the time period. But here's what I want us to focus on here. Uh, finally, you know, Ezra gets there, and it says the good hand of his God was upon him in verse 9. But then check this out. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law. See, Ezra didn't pout. Ezra prepared his heart. So let me ask you something. Are you in a dry place, a place where you feel boxed in or captured? Don't pout. Don't grumble and complain. Do what Ezra did. This is amazing. Prepare your heart. Prepare your heart how? To seek the law of the Lord. To seek the law of the Lord. Do you know this? It says in 1 Corinthians 2.10, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. When we prepare our hearts to seek the law of the Lord, we seek the law of the Lord. We, we read his commandments. Look this. We, we keep the Bible close to our prayer closet. We keep our prayer closet close when we're in the prayer closet. I said it that way on purpose. The Bible and prayer go hand in hand, and we're seeking the Lord, and we're seeking to prepare our hearts, and we're seeking to know the law of the Lord, listen, know this, that the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God and relays them to us through the Word of God, through the Word of God. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Don't just sit down in the mornings, you know, with that mug that's blasphemous that says Jesus plus coffee, Hmm, I don't think we want to be saying that personally, but that's up to you. Jesus plus coffee, I think it's Jesus and nothing, but whatever. That's my pet peeve for the day. But when we sit down and do our, 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 our devotions, remember, it's the Holy Spirit as we, it, it's the child of God searching the Word of God by the Spirit of God, you see. So remember that He's there, that He's helping, that He's searching the deep things of God, and he wants to supply them into your life so you can know them for yourself, be healthy and whole, and then give them out to others. Man, is that a great mission. COVID can't change that. Nothing can until the Lord comes home. Nothing can. Nothing will change this. Okay, so you prepare your heart. What? Seeking the law of the Lord. But don't just seek the law of the Lord. I know lots of people who seek the law of the Lord day and night. Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. But there's no authentication in their life. There's no authenticity. Oh, I messed that up. No authenticity in their life. Why? Because they've never lived life. They're just in the cocoon of Christendom. They never venture out because they're scared or whatever it is. Nothing in their life. So when they get up to teach, yes, it's good and clinical. They got the five-point outline and they're giving it all to you. But you know, right? You know when somebody hasn't experienced life and the Lord. You know, right? You, you, the guy give the amazing sermon. It's amazing info. But there's just something missing. 
Oftentimes what's missing, that anointing, is that they've never lived it out in life. Get it? Well, the Bible says, obviously, we're to be doers of the word. There has to be, listen, there has to be some shoe leather on the gospel. The gospel, yes, it's for here, but then it's also for out there. Let's quit being scared to leave our Christian cocoons and get out there and do what the Lord has us do. And you know what the Lord often has you do is he often makes you do really hard things. (laughs) You're like, oh, great, (laughs) let's go. Oh, wait a minute, that's hard. Like, here's some of the things he makes you do. Have really tough conversations with people you love. Uh, Have really tough conversations with people without the Lord in your life, you probably won't love. (laughs) But because the Lord's in your life, you're right, you still love them. Even enemies, you have to have really tough conversations with people sometimes. It's not all just smiles and harps and halos. Sometimes you have to tell people truth, but you do it gracefully. Can you do it gracefully? Of course. Can you do it lovingly? Yes. But should you do it? Uh Uh-huh. And here, I'm just bringing up one example. We are to do it full of grace and truth. When the Lord says this, Lord says, uh, I want you to forgive somebody, do it. Lord says, I don't want you to cheat, don't. You say, well, wait a minute, everybody's doing it. Nobody's forgiving, nobody's doing it. Do what the Lord says. And here's what he's looking for. How do you prepare your heart in Babylon when it's dry? How do you prepare your heart to come back to the Lord? You seek the law of the Lord with everything that's in you. You do the law of the Lord. When, when the Lord, in your devotion or you're reading the Bible, speaks to you about one of the scriptures and, it, and, and basically saying, can you just do that? You know what you should do? Do it. Do it. Live the word. Don't just know the word. And to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is what Ezra did. He prepared his heart by seeking the law of the Lord, by doing it, and by teaching statutes and ordinances. Folks, if you want to be a teacher, right? If you want to communicate, if you want to be a discipler, which, let's see. Oh, that's all Christians should be a disciple, discipler. Remember this, when you teach, you put yourself in a different category, not disciple, teach. You put yourself in a different category. The category is, you better not screw up so much, (laughs) because this is a serious business, teaching the Word of God. And in order to do it, you better prepare your heart to seek the law of the Lord. You better know it as well as you can and be prepared and to uh, uh, practice and know the Lord and work with it and, and, and understand it as much as you can and then live it out in life. And that will allow you to come and teach it. You got to be able to be real with people. I'm convinced you can't be holier than thou with people when you're standing up here. You just got to be real. And that's what Ezra did. And what a guy, right? That's what Ezra did. Oh, hey, folks, by the way, did you know in John 14, 26, I've already told you that the Holy Spirit is a helper. The Holy Spirit is a ready scribe and that he inspires the word of God. But how about this? John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, to whom the Father will send in my name, ready for this? 
He will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit's a teacher. He's a teacher, and he will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you, Jesus said. That's an interesting phrase here in the scripture. He'll bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. In order to remember something, what do you have to do first? Yeah, know it or learn it. (laughs) I'll just let that sit there for a minute. But anyway, he's a teacher. He's a teacher, and we see that here. Well, here's what happens. A copy of a letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, experts in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm circle it, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. Do you know that Revelation twenty two seventeen says, whosoever will let him take the water of life freely shall live. You see that? What is water a picture of? The Holy Spirit. There's this choice. Anybody who wants to come and take of the water of life will be filled up with the water of life, which we know from Jesus telling is the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit. So Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to you, to Jerusalem, may go with you. (laughs) You see the sovereignty of God here? This is a Persian king allowing a Jewish scribe to go back to his homeland with some people that he rules Doesn't happen very often, folks. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and you're you're to carry the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. Almost too hard to believe. Whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people, and the priests are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. He sends them legally to go back. Another king, you know, we read this kind of with a different king earlier, sending others back in the first return. Here now, he says, you guys go back, take, take stuff for your temple, anything you need, carte blanche, you got it. I want you to go back and do it. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, lambs, grain offerings, and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar uh, uh, of the house of your God in Jerusalem. Offer them on the altar uh, of the house of your God in Jerusalem. In other words, I want you to take anything that will enable you, that will enable you to worship. And able to, that's how they worship, right? That's how they worship is through this, uh, through, through the sacrifices. Well, do, with, do, do me a favor. Well, I'll read it to you. Philippians 3.3, 3, for we are the circumcision, ready? Who worship God in the spirit. How do we worship God? We worship God in what? Spirit and in truth. Isn't that fascinating that, that this is in the book of Ezra? 18, and whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, hey, do it according to the will of your God. 
Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree. Issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. You know there's this one proverb that's meant so much to me in my life. It's uh, 21.1. It says, The king's heart is is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord can even turn a king's heart. He turned Darius's heart back in chapter 6. He turned Cyrus's heart before in this book. And now Artaxerxes' heart is toward the people of Israel. Don't give up on what you consider to be important people. The Lord can turn their heart too. Well, what about this? Uh, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Verse 22, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Isn't that funny? Because I don't want to get in trouble with your God. He knew something was powerful about the one true and living God. Now you say, why do they run through all of these gifts? Four tons of silver, 600 gallons of wine. Why, why do they run through all of that? Well, I believe it's a picture of 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. May I read it to you? But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another miracles, prophecy, to another to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretations of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, listen, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Here, Ezra thinks these are amazing gifts that have been given to them and to the people of God. We have the greatest gifts. God gives us gifts liberally. And why do you think there's gifts? Now, you could go and read the te- get the teachings. 1 Corinthians it's 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14. But what are the gifts for? The gifts are always, listen to what I'm saying, to glorify God and to build up the body, not to glorify this one who has the gift. So if you see somebody using a gift to glorify self, improper. You use, if they're using their gifts to glorify God and to build up the body, proper. Got it? But he does it. He gives them liberally. And here we see a picture of that. 24 also Verse 24, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, etc. of this house of God. By the way, this is where we, 501c3 in our IRS law, our tax code, comes from, right there. They started not taxing houses of worship based on that scripture. Isn't that interesting? 
That's how it started. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people. You get this? This is blow, mind-blowing, blow-away stuff. He says, oh, and by the way, according to your wisdom, why don't you do this for yourself? Isn't this funny? Set up some people to help you, like magistrates and judges, who can judge all the people, uh, such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Artaxerxes gave Ezra the right to do what he was already going to do anyway, and that's disciple people in the law and build them up so that they could teach also. Isn't that funny? The Bible's funny to me. That's amazing. So he says, whoever will not, but, but look what else he gives uh, them. Whoever won't observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death Banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. You see, he gave Ezra a lot of uh, responsibility. That's a pagan king to the people of God. Okay, blessed then. Well, by the way, by the way, this is a fascinating thing about the book of Ezra. Right here, this narrative, this story, this Bible, (laughs) all these letters, these chapters, shifts into the first person until chapter 9, verse 10, first time this happened. In other words, Ezra's starting to speak himself. So Ezra compiled this book, of course. He says here, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Remember Proverbs 21.1? To beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Folks, do you get this? Listen, Listen, some people really need to hear this. He's not just fitting us together. We're sharp stones, the New Testament tells us, being fit together. That means he has to rub off some of the stones or the edges because you're sharp and so am I. And if we're going to live together, some of our roughness needs to be rubbed off. Boy, is that a word for me. But he doesn't just want to stick you in there. He also wants to make you beautiful. He wants to beautify the house of the Lord, and you're the house of the Lord. Your stone's being fitted together, but it's not just some nondescript stone, you know, fourth from the bottom, maybe, maybe ten millionth from the bottom, which means the cornerstone is Jesus, and you're way up there, and you're thinking, Sheesh. and you know, you're just a piece of sandstone or something. No, no, no. Listen, he wants to make you beautiful. He's going to take what's ugly in my life, Hopefully, as I cooperate, hopefully I cooperate, the Lord's good, and he'll finish what he starts, but he's going to take you what's ugly in your life and make it beautiful. Isn't that incredible? So he wants to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and he's extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged. I was encouraged. Listen to this. I was encouraged. I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord God was upon me. You know this in Ephesians 3.16. We should just memorize all these together, man. All about the Holy Spirit. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, encouraged with might through how? His spirit. Where? In the inner man or woman. In the inner man or woman. How do you get encouraged? Yes, you're strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man as he 
great, gives you the grace and the riches of his glory. Okay. I was encouraged because the hand of the Lord God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Leading men of Israel. Okay. Ready for this? Chapter 8. By the way, oh, anyway, I won't tell you. We won't get off on that track. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes, and you can read all of that all the way down to verse 14. And what you would conclude is there are about 1,500 men, just approximately about 1,500 men going in the second wave. How many in the first wave? 50,000. How many now in this wave? 1,500. Just about 1,500. And I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priest and found none of the sons of Levi there. You, you see, you got to, I hope what, one of the things that I'm doing for you, I hope, is giving you these phrases, these, these, this foundation. Actually, the Lord's doing it, but hopefully I'm participating that when you come across a phrase or a word or people, you, you start to know them. And so one of the things that you would know is that Levi was one of the 12 sons, and out of the tribe of Levi came the people who worked in the temple. And if you, wanted, had to be, or if you were going to be a priest, you had to be a specific type of Levite, and that's a, an Aaronic, Aaron, person from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. But the other Levites, there's more than just Aaron people in the Levites, they were the ones who helped support the temple, do things in the temple. And listen, isn't it sad? Ezra gets the cue to go back. All these people start coming out of the houses with their suitcases. And he's like, hold on, time out. None of the Levites wanted to go back. None of the Levites wanted to go back, which is really sad. Isn't it really sad? Do you know when there's a healthy church or a healthy movement, you know what they have? They have healthy leaders. And I don't mean leaders that lord it over people. I'm talking about healthy leaders who are seeking the Lord, who are helping the people worship and coming alongside and propping them up and making things ready so that people can worship and, and, and serve their God, right? Here they found no Levites. So what does Ezra do? I want you to catch this. Ezra calls up his friends and says, can you believe the Levites? That's what we do. Or he calls up some people in the church and says, hey, you guys really need to help in the temple. Doesn't do that. You know what uh, Ezra does? He doesn't manipulate the situation. He doesn't try to make things happen uh, on his own. You know what he does? Look what he does. Found none of the sons of Levi, so I sent for these people, men of understanding, and I gave them a command, the chief man at the place of Caius, and I told them what they should say to Ido and his brother, uh, uh, Caspia, that they should bring us servants for the house. Then by the good hand of God, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, etc., 20 men, and also these Nethanim, whom uh, down in 20, and the leaders had appointed for the service of Levites, 220 Nethanim, uh, all of them uh, were... Uh, uh, designated my name. But remember, this is a three-day stop by the river. A three-day stop by the river, and look what he does. 
He proclaims a fast. He wants to know, listen, am I doing this in my own strength, or is this something, Lord, that you're in? Get it? You understand what I'm saying? So don't, don't, don't think fasting is mysterious. Let's talk about what fasting is. It's real easy. Fasting's real easy. You know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? All you need to know is this. When you fast. Jesus said it. I didn't say it. He said, when you fast, which means he just considers that his people are going to fast. So what's a fast? Well, listen, you're either doing one of two things each day, every day. You're either walking according to the flesh or you're walking according to the Spirit. You're either sowing to the flesh or sowing to the Spirit. And you can tell when you're doing the either, correct? Yeah. So here's what the Lord's saying. The Lord's saying, for a time, whatever time the Lord and you discuss, what I want you to do is I want you to give up the physical so that you can just concentrate on the spiritual. When there's anything, anything of spiritual concern and you're praying to the Lord and he gives you, and, and, and you're confused or boxed in or can't figure something out or you don't know what to choose, that seems like every day for me, by the way. <laughs> or there's, some, listen, something of great spiritual significance The Lord says, when you fast. And some of these things only will happen by fasting and praying. He said it, not me. The spiritual, you know, the the demonic, he he talked about that. Okay, so so what do you do? What, What you should know? I want you to know, fasting doesn't have to be food. It can be food because that feeds the physical, right? It can be TV. It can be, I don't know. Something that has a hold on you in the, in the flesh, right? Just give it up. But one thing I want you to know is this isn't being, the goal of your fast is not to be a good little boy or a good little girl so God will give me what I want. That has nothing to do with it. Can I wrench this out of the Lord by being good? That ain't fasting. It's you are perplexed. You have something of spiritual significance and you want to just more fully give yourself spiritually unto the Lord so that you and he can come to a place where you're comfortable with the next move. You're not strong-arming the Lord because I didn't eat four cookies at lunch. No, that's not it. Fasting's for you, just like praying's for you. It's not for the Lord. He doesn't need your four cookies or four cookies less. You get it? Okay, so that's what it is. And here he proclaims a fast at the river that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek for him the right way for us and for our little ones and for all our possessions. Before we go any farther, let's pray and fast. I want you to see something now. We're talking about revival and awakening. We don't want to get too far about from that. And here we see uh, that if you would study every major Revival, awakening, every single awakening. The Manhattan one, the Azusa Street one. The, uh, the one I love to study about is, because I can't, it's just so cool how it happened, is the Western Canada uh, revival in 1970 and 71. Go, go read about that. It's so sweet. But there's always a couple elements to revival. They're, they're always there. In every revival where the Holy Spirit falls, it's where one or just a few. It doesn't have to be a lot. 
In fact, there was this pastor named Bill McLeod out in uh, Western Canada who just started calling prayer meetings at his church. And there's always this prayer that captures a man or a woman. You know, the fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much. Just one, by the way. There's always prayer involved, and then prayer starts happening, and people want to pray together. In fact, Bill McLeod, uh, as he's been writing books and talking about that 1970-71 revival, said this about prayer in the church. You ready for it? This might hurt a little bit. Miss Sunday morning if you have to. Miss Sunday evening if you must. But never miss the prayer meeting unless you're dead. Miss Sunday morning if you have to. Miss Sunday evening if you must, but never miss the prayer meeting unless you're dead. That was Bill, that's, that's Pastor McLeod's first tip, so to speak, as to what happened at their revival. So he started praying, and he started calling his leaders and churches to pray. He was doing just what Ezra was telling us as we're coming back to the Lord we should be doing. Stop everything! Let's pray and fast. Let's just make sure we're protected for our little one's sake. Did you catch that? For everything that are in our possessions. Now, don't think they're materialistic. They were bringing the things of the Lord back, right? Okay, for I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying the hand of our God is upon him or all those for God who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who have forsake him. The Bible is so real, man. Ezra himself was like, man, I made a stupid mistake. I said this in front of the king. So now we can't not depend upon prayer and fasting. You get this? It's funny to me. That's so human to think. Well, so we did, we fasted, and we entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. The Lord will answer our prayer speedily. If you abide in his word and his words abide in you, it says he'll answer it. Now, I don't, this isn't give to get type stuff. But your will is so aligned with the Lord that the things you're asking are in the will of the Lord. And he's saying, yes. Such a beautiful relationship. And he answered our prayer. Well, listen, real quick. I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, here are these people, and 10 of their brethren, and weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the articles. I weighed into their hands 650 talents. I'm skipping down to 26. 20 gold basins there in 27. And I said to them, you're holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. And the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord your God. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests. Listen to this. If you were these 12 people, listen, (laughs) come on. You got all this stuff. You got to inventory it. There's no computer. There's no spreadsheet. There's no app. Lord, Am I to say that I'm going to travel 900 miles by donkey or whatever I'm going to do, mule, whatever, and if one little piece of gold fall or silver falls out, that's a problem? Really? But it was a problem, and here's why. Look at this. So he says in verse 30, the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. And then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month, and he 
delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. Delivered me from the enemy and ambush along the road, right? So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there. We finally got to Jerusalem and stayed there. Now listen, keep tracking with me. When they left Ahava, the river, they said, here, you catalog, weigh all this stuff. You make sure you, you know what you have, and here's why. Now, on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas. With them were the Levites, Jozabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah. You're saying, what's going on here? With the number and weight of everything, all the weight was written down... <laughs> At that time, they were real particular about this. What's this all about? You know, the Lord tells us to be very careful with our money. The Bible tells us a lot of things. Give from our first fruits. Give to the Lord from our first fruits, our best. Don't wait till the end to give. Give beginning. Think about what you're going to give. Pray about what you're going to give. And be a hilarious, joyful giver. You know all that. But also, did you know this in Luke 16? Jesus says, if you're not faithful with unrighteous manna, how could you ever be faithful with spiritual riches? Oh, you catch that? If, if you're not faithful with unrighteous manna, there's something about money. Mm, it appeals to the carnal. It appeals to the human heart left to yourself without the Lord. There's something about it where we want to fudge and make a little more and have a little bit more in our pocket than maybe we deserve or whatever. And the Lord here is saying, there's this thing out there. It's going to be a great indicator of your relationship with me. That's what the Lord says. And it's called money. And the Lord kind of says this, Really, he says, you're going to think it's yours, but it's not. It's really mine. And when you do the right things with money, you're going to be in a position to do the right things with spiritual truths. Wow. In fact, in Luke 12, 34, which I quote often, for where your treasure, treasure is, there your heart will be also. By the way, there's other things that the Bible says. It says, be, don't, you know, don't even give the appearance of impropriety with money. Money causes people to do weird things. So be real careful with money. So here's what we do. First of all, I don't know who gives what. We have a whole finance team here. I, didn't, I don't want that pressure, man. <laughs> so we have people who count, and then we have four people who run through the receipts, who run through all. We have four people, and these people bring it down to the penny. And that's the way it should be, right? That we know where the money's coming in and it's coming out, and we should be careful with our money. But here, he's talking to the church, yes, but he's also talking to us individually, folks. What do we do with our money? It's a great thing. And here he says, it counts. I'm looking at it. Well, then the children of those who had been carried away captive, uh, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings on the God of Israel, 12 bulls for the Israels, or for Israel, 96 rams, etc., uh, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people in the house of God. Amazing. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, when you're around non-believers, 
you don't have to give them Rome's road. Just talk to them as you would a Christian. Or if there's other Christians there, just talk as you normally would. I was listening to a conversation at the lunch program the other day, and some of our sisters were talking to some people, and the issue, ironically, of money came up. And one of our folks started saying, yeah, so tithing. And somebody was like, what's tithing? And then they got to talk about it, and it was beautiful, and it was really a rich sharing time. And folks, Romans Road was never opened. I'm not against Romans Road, but... And here, look, they delivered the king's orders to the king, uh, satraps and the governors, and they gave support to the people in the house of God. Isn't that cool? Okay, look at this. This whole story in chapter 9. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel, listen, all this time, he's gotten back to Jerusalem. He's prepared his heart. So great. I'm going to go back and the people are going to be, the temple's restored. There's no texting or email. The t- so he doesn't know exactly. The, the temple's restored. We're going to be able to worship. I bet you everybody's down there all the time, all the time, just worshiping the Lord. It's going to be so cool. And when he gets there, here's what people do to the pastor. They bring them the problems. <laughs> just a joke. But it's not really. And he brings them the problems, and he says, hey, you know what? The people of the Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, etc. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Now listen, folks. God is not against interracial marriage. No way. All are same. In Christ Jesus. That's settled. Get that out of your mind. God's not against that. At this particular time, these particular people, the Jewish people, during this particular time, remember, there were prophecies that the Messiah had to come through those people. And the Lord was worried that these people would dilute themselves to the point where the families wouldn't stay intact and the Messiah couldn't get through. Now, he wasn't worried. I said that. God wasn't worried. He knew what he was doing. And this was why he kept Israelites marrying Israelites. It wasn't because he's racist. That's clear from the New Testament. He had an objective, and that was to get the Messiah through these people, right? He also knew something else. If you married with these certain people here that's listed, they served Evil gods, and he didn't want the people serving other gods. That's the reason he sent them into Babylon, right? So get that out of your head. But here, this is a serious matter. And Ezra knows it. Indeed, look down here, or so, verse 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head. Are you kidding me? And beard and sat down, astonished. Don't ever cover over sin either personally or in the church. We're not to cover over sin. And here, Ezra knew it, and he, oh, he hurt for the sin that was taking place among the people of God. One writer has said, good leaders make your burdens their burdens. Here you see Ezra doing that. 
He's burdened by this, and he doesn't say, oh, look what my people have done. He says, look what we've done. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening. And at the evening sacrifice, by the way, here comes one of the greatest prayers of the Old Testament right here. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh my God, I'm too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. Why would he be ashamed and humiliated? He didn't do it. No, because his people had. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. You catch this? And you know what even made him more ashamed? Here's what made him more ashamed too. Look down in verse 8. For a little while, you think there's no grace in the Old Testament? (laughs) And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. God always left a remnant, a little bit of the, a little piece of the Israelites to come back. That's graceful. And to give us a peg in his holy place. What's that mean? Stability. That our God may enlighten our eyes. There's this sense when we know God, our eyes are opened, right? Grace. And uh, he gives us a measure of revival in our bondage. He outlines grace for us. Okay, hold on. For we are slaves, yet our God didn't forsake us in our bond. And then down there he says, to rebuild its ruins, right in verse 9, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem, more grace, protection. You see that? And then he keeps praying. We've forsaken your commandments The land which you're entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land. And he just prays. And he wants to be strong. He wants them to be strong up there in verse 12 and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to children forever. You see that? And he says this, You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance. Should we again break your commandments, join in marriage with the people committing these things? Wouldn't you be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we left as a remnant as this today. Here we are before you in our guilt. Remember, godly sorrow, godly sorrow, not godly, I got caught and I turned around and said I was sorry. That's not repentance. Godly sorrow and repent, or leads to repentance. You see it? Okay, though no one can stand before you because of this. Now, I want you to catch what they did, and we'll close. Chapter 10, look at this. Just catch what they did. Is this radical or what? Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. Folks, Canadian revival, Azusa Street, Manhattan in the 1840s, every uh, Wales, Scotland, just go read about any single awakening or revival. What's the number one thing that happens? People get a burden to pray. Might just be a few people, one person who really wants to pray, not pretend. That's one element. But the second element that's always in every revival, every awakening is this one. That people have a burden, not for your sin, but for their own sin. That what they see is no more an excuse like, oh, you know, I just, justifying. Oh, well, I tend to yell a little bit. I'm Irish. No, you're a sinner with an anger problem. That's what I am. And every 
revival, every awakening has this element, and I hardly see any of this in the American church. I mean, come on. We've got Instagram. We've got lattes. We've got cool uh, outfits. We've got Range Rovers, and we post them up on, and, you know, we do all these cool things, and we're doing such cool things in the church when really we ought to be weeping for our sins, weeping. Where is the burden for our sin? It's hardly anywhere in the American church. Well, this guy named Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, by the way, he's one of the guys that took a pagan wife. (laughs) He says, hey, you're right. We've trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples. Yet now there is hope in Israel. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away. Hey, here's what we'll do. We'll say we won't do it anymore. We're not going to do it anymore. That's what this this man that stands up. He says, I'm one of them. And guess what, Lord? You told us through Israel, and it's wrong. We won't do it anymore. According, listen, but he says, you got to read, you just got to think about this. Let us make a covenant with God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of God. He's saying, according, I recognize it's wrong. It's wrong. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put it in the hands of our leaders. Whatever they say to do, we're going to do. Did you catch that? So they said, arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Do you catch this? He says, I'm one of the sinners. I took a foreign wife. By the way, some of the prophets say, not only did the Israelites marry pagan wives, some of the Israelites divorced their Jewish wives to marry pagan wives. Anyway, he says, you guys do it. So look what Ezra does. Can you imagine if you're Ezra? I don't envy Ezra right here. Ezra goes, okay, big, tough problem. Le- and made the leaders of the priests, Levites and Israel, swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra, look what he does, rose up from before the house of God, went into the chamber of Jehonan or whatever. He went into his prayer closet. And when he came there, what did he do? He fasted. He ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt. He's just mourning. Just hang with me. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instruction, uh, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly. So all the people of Judah and Benjamin came to Jerusalem within three days. You see that? And it says they were trembling because of this matter and because they were cold, heavy rain. The Bible's so great. Then Ezra, verse 10, the priest stood up and said to them, you've transgressed, taken pagan wise, now therefore make confession to the Lord. You've seen this, a godly sorrow and then a confession. This is always part of revival, folks. By the way, Beck is so good at this. You ever heard Beck talk? You know one of the things Beck always invites the people to do when he's talking? Respond to the gospel. And one way you can respond to the gospel is do what it says. Confess your sins one to another, not in a gossipy way, but so that there could be healing here. Confess your sins one to another. Here, 
uh, stood up, said to them, you've transgressed, taken pagan rise, now make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Of course, you confess to the Father and you confess your sins one to another. Listen to this. Then all the assembled answers said with a loud voice, yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people, it's the season for heavy rain and they were not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days. Uh, uh, who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand. Let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at the appointed times with the elders and judges until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, son of Asheol, etc., opposed this, and the others uh, gave them support. Listen, listen to what happens. I got a real point here. I, think this is, I know it's late, but I think this is going to really touch you and help you this week and going forward. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain heads of the father's households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the 10th month. Do you understand what they did? They interviewed the families, and they asked them to tell the truth. And it took a while. It took a while. They sat down on the first day of the 10th month to examine the manor, and by the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. This wouldn't be easy, man. What they were about to embark on would be really, really difficult, really hard, really a tearjerker, really emotional. But it came down to this, really hard, really difficult. Were they going to obey the Lord or were they going to do what they wanted to do? Because this is going to be hard. Look what they had to do. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found. And I'm not going to read them all to you. You can read all to him. And they, verse 19, and they gave away their promise that they would, and they, and they gave their promise that they would put away their wives and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespassing offering. And now from verse 20 to verse 43, they name all the people who, who disobeyed the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be in that category? How would you like to be in this account of people? Oh, your sins are there for all to see for all eternity. How cool. Except if you think that way, I think you're missing the point. You see, these people did, did what the Lord asked them not to do. You know this, right? The Lord, in his law, first five books of the Bible, said not to take wives from these family, or these different uh, nations. Again, for the reasons I described. They were taught the law when they were kids, but, you know, they were up in the thing, and they were up in the place, and, you know, I know we're coming back, and we have some spiritual teachers or whatever, and there's a temple back there, and, and, but, but, you know, that's in the past. That's old news. We'll just do it. What, what's the harm? I mean, these are nice ladies. You see, when they disobeyed the Lord, listen to what they had to do. They had to send away their wives and their children. You know how hard that would be? They got to the point, they got so entrenched in what they were doing, disobeying the Lord, you think, they got so entrenched that the consequences were awful. But in order to obey the Lord, they had to do it. Who likes to be at that crossroads? Who here? Why not just nip it in the bud early and obey the Lord? But they didn't, so okay, they didn't. So they're put here and they're described on here, but see, I don't think it's here 
to make them an example in their sin. Yeah, there is an element of that because sin always has a consequence. You know why I think it's here? I think the Lord's standing up and saying, yes. No matter what it took, no matter how hard it was, no matter how emotional they felt about it, these people chose the healthiest and best thing. They chose to obey me. And for that, I want to make sure they're put in the eternal word so that they'll be an example for all for eternity. That when God calls you to something, even if it's hard, even if it doesn't make sense to other people, even if it's emotional, he honors the hard choice. Not only does he honor the, whole ch the hard choice, he publishes it for people to know. Listen to this one, and we'll close on this. Sorry it was so long. We're done with Ezra. I didn't rush so much, and I didn't see a sign, so that was good. I want you to hear this from Matthew 19, 27 through 30. Then Peter answered and said to him, Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Is that classic or what? That's how man thinks. I left everything for you, Jesus. What do I get? Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, what are we advocating here? Are we some sort of cult that's saying, leave your family and come see us? No, that's not what we're saying. Jesus isn't saying that either. What he's saying is, where do your allegiances and your love lie? When it comes to push and shove, who are you going to follow? What I say or what someone else who has a pull on you says? Does he want you to love your family? Of course. Love your family. Of course. Take care of your family. Uh, be a provider for your family. But listen, if any one of these things has a hold on you greater than Jesus... There's a problem. But when we get to the point where our treasure is in Jesus, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, catch this, you'll be in the administration on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. You'll have participation in his kingdom forever. Well, this is a hard teaching. But we want revival, don't we? And if we want revival, there's another who's an enemy of our souls who wants nothing better than to stymie that revival. And so he gets you to say and think stuff like this. Come on, man. That thing that the pastor just read in Matthew 19, I ain't doing that. Come on. 
You mean if she sins or he sins or they sin, i got to act like it's my sin? Come on, I'm not doing that. Now the enemy has you where he wants you. But how about what if, what, what if we did this? What if we said, we believe that a righteous a prayer of a righteous man availeth much? What if we said we're going to get in our prayer closet? What if we said we were going to get together at the prayer meetings and we were going to pray and pray and pray for revival? And then what if we said, yes, Lord, fall on me. Judgment starts with me. That thing that I've been doing, you're right, is sin. And not just take it away out of our lives, but fill us ourselves back up with the Holy Spirit. And then what if we went out of here and we loved patiently and we forgave and we shared the gospel and we did good and we never wearied of doing good? Do you think the Spirit could operate in that environment? Yeah. So it's my prayer, and I'm sure it's many of yours. I'm convinced that in southwestern PA, there's going to be a revival before the Lord comes. Does there have to have anything happen before the Lord comes? No, he could come tonight. If the Lord comes tonight, we'd say, yes, amazing. Do, do I think that the revival has to happen before the Lord? No, I don't think that. He could come at any time. But if the Lord tarries, if he decides he's not coming back, I'm convinced that there are people that the Lord wants to work in and through to pour out his spirit in a mighty way. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this evening and thank you for these people hanging in there with me. <laughs> But really, hanging in with you, Lord, this is an imp- a powerful word. Lord, I pray that we would take heed to this and that you would fill us afresh with your Spirit. Lord, that we would give more and more of ourselves to the Spirit. And that there would be a great revival of souls as you see fit, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.